Home builders ride the housing boom to a new high. New home sales have surged in each of the past two years in the Chicago area, despite prices that have also been rising quickly. And I'll talk with Cranes reporter Ali Marathi about news from the restaurant industry, including a sommelier's fourth restaurant set to open and how the owner of a local chain is looking to sell. Budlong Hot Chicken, um, you know, they do fried chicken sandwiches and, and other options. They do the Nashville hot style. They've been open in the city since 2016 and currently have five locations. Uh, Came across a listing for these five locations and called the owner and he was telling me that he is shopping them around. I'm Amy Guth and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, February 14th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined by Cranes reporter Ali Marathi here to talk about the restaurant world. You report on so many different things, Ali, but the, the restaurant world is one of them, and you always have a lot of spinning plates. There's always a lot going on there. What is what is the latest stuff that you've been covering? Yeah, so in the past week or so, I've been writing about both ends of the spectrum, where we've seen you know one longtime Chicago restaurant owner who is ready to open her fourth restaurant. And then on the other hand, we're seeing another chain of five chicken places, chicken sandwich places, that the owner is looking to potentially sell. So it's interesting to me, you know, if we look at this, we're approaching the two-year anniversary of the start of the pandemic, and you're still seeing, you know, you're seeing restaurants open, but you're seeing people that want to get out of the business too. So it's just kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Well, let's start with uh, what's opening. Chicago restaurant owner and sommelier Alpana Singh is uh, preparing to open her fourth restaurant. And this one she is naming after herself. It'll be called Alpana. It's going to be in the Gold Coast, which is where she lives. So it's, you know, very personal for her. She has another restaurant that's open right now. It's up in Evanston. And she has had two other ones previously that are no longer open. So this one, she said, is just very personal. She's naming it after herself. She's serving her neighbors. She has been in the wine world for 25 years and has a really interesting story. So she was telling me that she just really feels like now is the time to tell that story through this restaurant. So just to give a bit of her background, it's pretty interesting. Uh, She's uh, got her start uh, working as a wine sales clerk at a market in California when she was 19. She's the daughter of Fijian and Indian immigrants. Then basically she was uh, named a sommelier of Chicago restaurant Everest, age 23, which, you know, is very high in restaurant. That's a really big deal. I think even just to be a sommelier by 23. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. A small number of people even passed that test to begin with, much less at 23. It was very interesting. You know, I was researching the story and she was one of our 40 under 40 recipients back almost 20 years ago now. And she was young then, 20, 24, I think. And she was saying, I have no concept of what it means to be a normal, like early 20 something. <laughs> it's just yeah. so interesting when you're thinking about what kind of wine were you drinking when you were that age? It was probably Arbor Mist or something. <laughs> Some sort of, sort of wine cooler. That Boone's Farm thing or Zima was around. Yeah, exactly. 
So she became the youngest and the first woman of color to pass the final level of the master sommelier exam, which is very prestigious and only has about a 3% pass rate. Wow. So that's wild. She established her credentials very early on. You know, she um, hosted check please on WTTW twice for a total of 10 seasons. And like I mentioned, she's had the restaurants, she's worked in restaurants. So with this, her own restaurant here, she's doing the menu. There will be a chef that cooks it, but she's creating the menu. She's always had a love for cooking, but sort of developed it during the pandemic. And she's going to build the food around the wine list, which is sort of the opposite of what you see in especially high-end restaurants where, you know, typically the chef is coming up with a menu and the sommelier is tasked with pairing a wine with that food, but she's doing it the other way around, which is really interesting. I talked to a few other people in the industry and they said that that's going to be kind of like a departure from what's normal and it should be fun for people that go and eat there. And then the design of the space she was telling me is just a complete reflection of her personality too. There's going to be portraits of women she has admired. She said she's decorating it in sort of this theme that um, is based off of the concept of Lilith in the Garden of Eden. Wow. And if you're familiar with Lilith, you know, she was Adam's first wife. Some people demonize her, but then the feminists have really gotten behind Lilith. Um, it's kind of like this witchy feminist character. So she's going to have like this jungle themed print. There's going to be you know, light fixture that comes down and it has ivy. So a vibe is basically all her is what she's going for here. And it sounds like it's going to be um, a pretty fun space and she's hoping to open it in the spring. So that's something we can look for there. And just again, you know, I've reported on these numbers. We've talked about this before, but restaurant openings continue to be down, you know, in the city and in the state. Part of that is because of all the issues that restaurant operators have been dealing with for two years and continue to plague them. For example, labor market, we're seeing a lot of supply chain issues. Inflation is hard now for restaurant operators because, you know, you can only raise your prices so much before your customers stop buying. You can only make so many menu swaps, you know, when something gets too expensive or isn't available. So opening a restaurant nowadays is something that I watch pretty closely and usually ask about, you know, the operator kind of how hard it's been. Do you get the impression that restaurant menus will make some kind of big shift? They'll start to look different because of supply chain issues on the other side of the pandemic? I think so. I always ask restaurant operators about this when I talk to them. And I've been told that in many cases, they do make switches when something's not available. So for example, I was speaking with the owner of a steakhouse recently, and she was telling me that a crab cake, you know, one, one day the crab was really expensive. So they switched it and made like a shrimp cake out of it. And customers still loved it. And the chefs just have to be really versatile. But I think it's something where as restaurant operators, you hope that this far into the pandemic, your customers will understand that you are making these changes, you know, and I think steak is an interesting one. We'll have to talk about this a little bit more in a couple of weeks because it's something I'm digging into right now. But um, you know, when you have a menu that's built com- entirely around something like steak, where you really can't do a substitution, I think what we're going to see is more menus that come out that are just broader so that all your eggs are in one basket, right? You don't want to build a menu 80% around steak. And then suddenly your steak supplier had to shut down because of, you know, a COVID outbreak or whatever. That way you can have different price points. You can also get more people in if you're more accessible for everybody. That's something restaurant operators are thinking about too. So yeah, I think that is something that we'll see kind of permanently change. Let's go to the other end of that spectrum there where maybe we're we're talking about restaurant sales. Yes, for sure. So Budlong Hot Chicken, um, you know, they do 
fried chicken sandwiches and another option. And they do the Nashville hot style. They've been open in the city since 2016 and currently have five locations. Uh, came across a listing for these five locations and called the owner and he was telling me that he is shopping them around. So what happened was he moved to Denver a few years ago and started opening locations there and was coming back and forth to Chicago, very hands-on, you know, kind of a small chain. So it wasn't something where he was farming out a lot of the operation and daily work. He was coming back and forth a lot. And that sort of stopped with COVID, you know, because of the travel restrictions, he wasn't able to come back as much. Like I said, he said he's somebody who likes to be there and help operate. And especially now there's operational issues that arise every second of every day in a restaurant. And he said, it's just really hard to do that from across the country. So he's just kind of looking around to see who's out there. Does somebody want to buy the whole thing? Does somebody want to add it to their existing portfolio? Maybe he keeps ownership, but brings in a new operator. So I just thought it was interesting that the price that he listed for these five locations is $3 million. So kind of interesting to see this process of it being shopped around. I'm going to call him back you know, soon and hopefully get a gauge on what kind of feedback he's getting from the market because it's kind of an interesting route to go about selling you know, these types of businesses. I don't know if you could find this out yet at this point, but it would be interesting to see like who the bites are coming from. Is it individuals looking to get into the game or is it maybe established restaurant groups that are like, yeah, Bud Long Hot Chicken, that would be good for our portfolio. Yeah, exactly. We've been in kind of this chicken sandwich craze for a couple of years now that really sort of was sprung by Popeye's launching like, you know, a new chicken sandwich that, uh, you know, it was really crispy and used a good a good chunk of chicken, unlike a lot of the other fast food chicken sandwiches that were on menus that were just sort of flabby and, you know, not that satisfying to customers. And you saw that in the summer of 2019, a whole bunch of fast food places have since fallen into line trying to keep up. Everybody from McDonald's to Burger King to even Portillo's, right? Redoing their chicken sandwich, launching new ones. But then separately, you have these chains that you see a lot of around Chicago, Bud Long, You have honey butter fried chicken, Parsons does fried chicken, restaurants like that in the city where, you know, they're just popular. The past five years been opening in a lot of different places. And Bud Long, you know, they launched in 2016, their first location. They've had a few locations come and go, even just, you know, throughout the pandemic, for example, they had a merchandise smart location that they had to close permanently just because people haven't come back downtown in as, you know, thick of droves as they once were. They had a location in Revival Food Hall that was pretty popular. It closed for a while during the pandemic. It reopened for about six months last summer, but it just wasn't taking off again. So he had to close that one as well. So it's one of those things where he was saying, you know, the pandemic has just changed everything. A lot of them are still struggling financially. He thinks that the the loop could come back eventually. This is another question you always ask people, right? Like, will the loop come back? Who's back there already? You know, and you hear a lot. uh, It's tourists that are back as opposed to workers, you know, that are going down there every day. So it's just something that I think, you know, we're going to have to continue to watch because I think we're going to see more of these again, even two years into this thing. You know what? I had not even thought about food halls. I feel like pre-pandemic, that was all the thing. Yeah. It was all about the food hall. I wonder how that, as a concept, will fare. We have the timeout market in the West Loop. Let's take that Fulton Market area. Let's take that one as an example. It shut down completely for a while. A lot of them did. Revival did too. And when they reopened, it was there was sort of this reshuffling of restaurants that were in there, right? Because not all of them survived. Some of them didn't want to be in the food hall anymore um, because that kind of lunch moment was gone, you know, leaving your office during the day to go get lunch. 
I've written about one that opened. It's a new one. It replaced the Wall Street Market in the loop. And it's basically almost like a to-go food hall now, like a ghost kitchen type food hall situation. Very interesting. I think we're going to see a lot of places that do open up in food halls now, they're making sure that they do have that to-go option because they think that even when people do go back to the office and want that little escape from work, you know, you're used to having basically maximum efficiency during your day because you're not like commuting and you're not walking around the loop to decide what you want for lunch or whatever. And you're just used to your food being ready when you get there. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves as more people start going back down to the loop. Right. And even things like comfort level of sitting in a big space with a lot of tables and a lot of people. I think that'll be interesting to watch too. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks so much, Allie. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Coming up, the Senate passes a landmark Me Too bill. The measure would prohibit enforcement of contract provisions that require third-party arbitration of workplace sexual harassment or assault claims. We'll talk all about that and more right after this. Cranes Academy is excited to announce our next session of executive education programming, Equity Leadership, taking place in Chicago on March 10th and 11th. Cranes Academy Equity Leadership will guide executives through diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies and activation, driving organizational change and growth. The session will address key considerations in developing a rich DEI strategy and implementing initiatives for your organization. For more information, visit cranesacademy.com. You're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. As the pandemic triggered a housing boom ending a decade-long slump, Chicago-area home builders sold more newly built homes last year than in any year since 2008, and despite price increases. Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin notes that developers sold just under 5,500 new homes, townhouses, and condos in the Chicago area in 2021, citing year-end data from Tracy Cross & Associates, a Schomburg-based consultancy that tracks new home sales. And that's the first time that sales crossed the 5,000 mark since 2008, when sales were over 6,300. But a key difference, as Rodkin reports, is that the 2008 number was on its way down from a years-long stretch of sales totals over 25,000, while the 2021 figure is a new high after a decade of relatively stagnant numbers. And it's also the second new high in two years. In 2021, new home sales were up 9.7% from 2020, which itself saw an increase of 17.1% from 2019. Of note, though, the cross data captures only homes sold in developments of 10 or more and covers both detached houses and attached condos and townhomes, so this data does not include homes built on individual lots. Nonetheless, builders added 40% more new units to the inventory pipeline in 2021 than the year before, according to the report. And as Rodkin also notes, much of this might even show up as further sales growth in 2022. Cleantech startup Lanzajet is partnering with an Illinois ethanol producer to build a new plant that will supply more environmentally sustainable aviation fuel. Lanzajet and the Marquis family, which operates an ethanol refinery in Hennepin, will build a plant that can produce about 120 million gallons of sustainable jet fuel each year and it would be one of the largest plants of its kind. Lanzajet is commercializing technology that produces ethanol jet fuel, which reduces greenhouse gases by 70% without any needed changes to planes' engines. 
Lanzajet is a spin-off of Skokie-based Lanzatech. Marquee Energy, founded in 2005, produces about 400 million gallons of ethanol per year from corn at its existing Hennepin biorefinery. Lanzajet is already building out its first U.S. facility to produce aviation fuel at a biorefinery in Georgia, with production scheduled to start next year. The new facility in Hennepin is expected to be completed in 2025. The Illinois Attorney General's Office and the City of Chicago have both urged the Illinois Commerce Commission to more than double the refund that ComEd should make to ratepayers over its admitted bribery scheme. Crane's Steve Daniels reports that although in December ComEd offered to pay $21 million, in testimony filed with the ICC, the City and the Citizens Utility Board called for a refund of more than $49 million. The action over how much the Chicago utility should reimburse customers for nearly a decade of bribery in Springfield aimed at enacting lucrative state laws at the expense of ratepayers is focused on the ICC. And that's because federal and state judges have dismissed class action lawsuits trying to achieve the same thing. Those rulings have been appealed to higher federal and state courts. In a statement, ComEd said that it disagrees with the assessment contained in the recently filed testimony and that they stand by their proposed refund amount. ComEd has proposed making the $21 million rebate and a single bill credit in April of 2023. That total would shake out to be about $5 each for the average household. If the commission goes the other direction, the credit would be more like $10 per household on average. Find more in-depth reporting on this story and many others at chicagobusiness.com. The U.S. Senate delivered a major legislative victory for the Me Too movement, clearing a House-passed bill to guarantee those who have experienced workplace sexual harassment or assault are free to pursue lawsuits in court. As reported by Bloomberg, the Senate passed the bill on Thursday and sent it to the White House to be signed into law. The bill would essentially transform how businesses resolve allegations of workplace sexual harassment and assault and how such issues are addressed in employment contracts. President Biden supports the legislation, which the White House previously said, quote, advances efforts to prevent and address sexual harassment and sexual assault, strengthen rights, protect victims and promote access to justice. The measure, which the House passed on February 7th, would prohibit enforcement of contract provisions that require third-party arbitration of workplace sexual harassment or assault claims, arbitration being an out-of-court process that is legally binding and takes place behind closed doors. And why this is so significant is that the Me Too movement exposed how such mandatory arbitration agreements, often signed as part of an employment contract, can favor employers over workers and often shield repeat offenders. On the Senate floor on Thursday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called the action, quote, one of the most significant changes to employment law in years. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's reporter, Ali Marathi. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Hit that subscribe button and remember to rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time. Crane's Audio Studio is proud to introduce the podcast series Four Star Stories. It debuts with Bronzeville, reported in three chapters by Dennis Rodkin. Once known as the Black Metropolis, Bronzeville is being reshaped by a construction boom that is revitalizing thousands of vacant lots. Home prices have soared to levels that buyers and sellers even less than a decade ago could never have imagined. 
Can this be done in a new way without forcing out longtime residents? And can it be done with respect for what's been there, including a deep reservoir of black community and achievement? To create a new Bronxville that welcomes others, but that is still very clearly the heart of this unique Midwestern black experience. The Bronzeville series from Crane's Audio Studio is part of Four Star Stories, Crane's ongoing effort to uncover Chicago's past, present, and future through the voices of the people who live and work here. Search Four Star Stories wherever you listen to podcasts to hear the full trailer and to subscribe. Four Star Stories, Bronzeville, in three chapters.